delighted to continue our new series in the Gospel of John here at Westminster. And if you look at your Bibles, hopefully you have your whole Bible in front of you, verse 118, uh, verse 1 through 18 is the prologue portion of the whole book. And again, a prologue is just an introduction uh, to explain what's coming in the narrative journey ahead of us. But as we noted, this prologue is something we can't quickly just go through and run through because this provides the reader deep and rich exposition into the person and identity of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, and explains the main purpose of Jesus' arrival here on earth some 2,000 years ago that we're going to read about in the chapters ahead, but John is saying you need to get this prologue down. And so several of you mentioned the other week that this deeper dive into this book struck a chord with you in, in, in a good way. And I, and I was encouraged to hear that. Not because you've never heard this before, not because you've never read John before, but perhaps it's been a while, it's been, it's been a while to actually dig deeper into the text and to marvel at the identity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For some of you, just learning, perhaps maybe even for the first time, all the distinctive attributes of Jesus' eternal being before creation, in his work over creation, and so forth. But the purpose is not just to simply gain more intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, or even what the Bible is about, and so forth. But we take our cue from the author, John the Apostle himself, who gives us the main purpose statement we said last week of the whole book, almost all the way at the very end of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Having said that, and we would assume a majority of self-professing Christians would believe this about Christ and his purpose, well, lately, we're starting to see some staggering studies and reports about the state of American evangelicalism and how it's not in a very healthy state in regards to core orthodox beliefs. You see, the purpose statement in chapter 20 summarizes several things about the identity of Jesus Christ that not all self-identified evangelicals, gospel-believing people, quote-unquote, in this nation believe in anymore, or perhaps they never actually ever did. And so what am I referring to? Well, there's a big study that came out last week called The State of Theology by Ligonier Ministries, a reform ministry many of you guys know about and, and go online and, and check out their, their videos, their sermons, their, their articles. Uh, based in Florida, it was founded by the late R.C. Sproul. So they did this State of Theology report along with LifeWay Research, and it was actually published online a day after I preached on the opening verses of the Gospel of John last week. And so the study on what American evangelicals believe about the personhood and identity of Jesus was alarming, to put it very, very mildly. Last week, I likened our study of the Gospel of John as akin to, what, coming up close, up close and personal with our Savior, much like King Charles in England was doing the other week with onlookers and massive crowds paying their support their condolences to, the, uh, to their family about the late Queen of England and, and then also to acknowledge the new kingship of Charles. And they were so surprised to see him and then his son, Prince William, shaking hands. They were up for the, uh, for the first time, up close and personal. And I was liking it to that our view of Christ or our relationship with him 
should not just be a passing wave or a glance on TV like the royalty in England, but to get up close and personal as we should. And this is the purpose of the whole series in John, to get up close and personal. Because, and one of the main ways we do that is to study and marvel at his word. But it seems that many self-professed evangelicals in America, they also for themselves need to do this more often. You see, the overall study from Ligonier, again, was discouraging and alarming. And if you indulge me, I'm just going to spend a minute on explaining some of those alarming findings. And so for those surveyed, people studying this, digesting this, noted that those who identified as evangelical, they checked the box, are people that sign up on these orthodox statements, these four main statements. Number one, that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. It is very important, number two, for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. Yep, that's me, they would say. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. That's great, that's number three. And then number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So far, so good. But when these self-identified evangelicals responded to the following questions, the percentages seemed very, very disturbing. For instance, one writer, blogger summarized more than half, 58% of those that did all the, the, the previous four statements, they checked up on all the, more than half of them, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And then more than half, 55%, agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good in their own nature. And this is crazy, almost three out of four, 73% of the people that, that, that agreed to those four statements earlier agree that the, with the claim that Jesus is the, quote, first and greatest being created by God. How crazy is that? We refuted that claim in verse 1 of John chapter 1. And we, we dissected that. We, we use other parts of Scripture to defend that truth. But it's alarming that almost 75% agree that Jesus was, yes, the greatest, but he was created. And then more than half, 55%, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. We addressed last week the Holy Trinity, God and three persons, the personhood of God and the Father, Son, and also the Holy Spirit. Not an it, but a he. And get this, almost half, 44%, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. The, per, the, the people that said, okay, I believe in the substitutionary, uh, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the Bible is high authority, all those people said, almost half of them, he was great, but he was not God. Those percentages are staggering. We live in an era of cultural Christianity meaning it's far easier to check off a box of being a Christian, maybe because of how you grew up, without really understanding what Christianity and its core doctrines are all about. Now, to be fair, that's the job of the church, to proclaim biblical orthodoxy, to be faithful to the scriptures and to the gospel. So a lot of responsibility falls on the church in America, and that the church in America should not be ashamed to teach what the Bible actually says. And of course, this uh, is relevant for any church in every, in every and all nations. But also the onus is on the individual to dig, dig deeper into God's word. So for those who might think, do we really need more gospel teaching? 
Uh, do we really need to look at the Gospel of John again to learn or even relearn what it says about the person and deity of Jesus Christ? Well, after this study came out last week, the answer is absolutely. Other studies show that uh, for the demographic of age 18 through 35, the numbers are staggering of how low the percentages are for that demographic of those attending church of saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And so I had no idea the study was being released, but to read that just days after preaching on the Logos from last week, the eternal word, capital W-O-R-D, that is God, with, was with God and was from the very beginning God, never created but eternal. To read that study afterward was a poignant moment for me. But instead of pointing figure, fingers about the state of the church, I realized again and again that I need to continually be reminded of this, that we need to pray, that we need to dig deeper into God's word, that we need to take seriously the preaching and study of his holy eternal word so that what? So that as John says in John 20, so that we can believe, not just culturally, but that we truly believe what else? So that we can understand the grandeur of our great king and learn more about him up close and personal. What else? So that we can worship the true light, today's topic, that is Jesus Christ. And last week we left off with three main points about Christ's identity, that from the very beginning, the word logos, Jesus was and is truly God. The word logos Jesus is truly, was truly, and is creator, and he was not created. The word logos, Jesus, was and is truly light. And so Jesus has a variety of names. We said this last week, tied to his identity. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the anointed one. He is Jesus, the incarnate one, word become flesh that we're going to hear in a couple of weeks, the Son of God, the Son of Man. But he is also in his name, the Logos, his from the very beginning eternal name. He was his own being, in his own being, truly God, and was in fellowship and unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past, and he will never change, as we discussed earlier today. And this is who the Apostle John is absolutely stunned by to have encountered Jesus face to face and who had the ultimate privilege to write about this Jesus and his message to come into this dark, dark world. So if you look at your Bibles, the third point last week stated that Jesus, the Logos, is light. Look at verse 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. John is not just alluding to Christ being the creative power behind bringing light to this world at the start of creation, but light as in being the capital light to a sinful, darkened world. You know, I heard a story of a guy many years ago who lived in a large city. I can't remember what city it was. His, report, his apartment, I, I think, was pretty decent. But being in the middle of the city, he had a big cockroach problem. And every night, and, you know, this is a little weird, but every night when he would come quietly home, he would open up very carefully and then he would quietly close the door behind him. And his light switch would, would just make the whole apartment just shine and he would just wait and then turn it on. And I don't know if it was hundreds, but it was a lot of cockroaches would scurry away and hide from the light. Just a delightful image for you this morning. Well, Jesus' light 
is not just to illumine, but, but that's definitely part of what the light is, but it's also to confront those hiding in darkness. Yes, that includes what was inside of you and me, not just for the other people out there, but for you and me. And that no matter how much darkness there is, nothing, not anything, can overpower this light. It's kind of like in Virginia, we have a lot of kind of cave exploration, things like that. And if you just light a small candlelight up in a darkened, pitch black cave, nothing can overcome this quote unquote light, no matter how massive you think the darkness is around you. And so the Apostle John switches to the theme of Jesus as the light in verse 6 through 9, our passage today. So he's, he's moving that, that, that theme now to Jesus as light. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You see, a new character has been identified, the short prologue. And he's going to get to it later at, at, and starting in verse 19. And the character not unfamiliar to any of us who have read the four Gospels in the New Testament, this, of course, is John, not the Apostle, but John the Baptist. And notice how John the Apostle is completely fine putting the spotlight on a different John. He doesn't identify himself this way, most likely as a nod to keep focus off of himself and probably a feeling of unworthiness. But he's readily available to say this is John the Baptist that we all know about. The other Gospel writers wrote about the significance of this witness the Baptist, this pronouncer of the true light who was to come and save. And so just in two very short verses, we learn two critical things. Number one is this, that this John the Baptist, as is known in the other gospel, was only to be a witness to the light who is Christ, not to impede, not even really to add or aid, but to point to. Now the term witness is going to come up a lot in the book of John, and witness and uh, a corresponding word, testimony, as D.A. Carson, noted New Testament scholar I talked about last week, notes. It's going to be used frequently in this, in this book, and the notion is in the courtroom context for someone to bear personal testimony to the validity of an event or to point to the testimony of one's character and so forth, to be an expert witness. This is the context. And so John the Baptist and his role was to point as an expert witness to the forthcoming ministry of Jesus on earth to seek and save the lost. And if you're new to church, you're saying, what, what, define what the word loss is. It's just a biblical term referring, referring to those who have not yet believed in God through faith. The Bible would say Jesus would come to seek and save the lost. And so this was the whole purpose of John the Baptist's life, to point to, to actually prepare the way. And so how many critical expert witnesses over all of history have been called to the stand to give their credible report about a personal event that turned out to be ultimately critical? Well, this was the privileged seat John the Baptist had at this juncture. This John, though, wasn't the only person to bring witness about the Son. One scholar noted all the instances in the Gospel of John of critical witnesses to the work and person of Jesus Christ. Oh, the father himself testifies of his own son, of course. Chapters 5 and 9. The Old Testament scriptures point to the testimony and witness of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. The crowd later in chapter 12 testifies to who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit in chapter 15. And all the apostles do testify. Jesus himself bears testimony to himself and to the truth in chapter 18. His own works do in the book of John. 
We also have the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And then, of course, together with the Father in chapter 8, verse 13 through 18. I'll just read verse 18. I, Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The second thing we learn is that we realize from these two verses that this man, John, was, what does it say there? Sent from God. He didn't just grow up religious and think this might be a good idea. And I'm going to just put all my eggs in this basket and I'm going to risk my whole life, my own neck, for this person named Jesus. But rather he was called. He was sent from God to be this witness. God is not only a speaking God, where we define logos last week from Carson's definition of that word is, quote, God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, the very expression of God himself is the word. God not only speaks, but he also sends. He is ascending God. We see that in the Old Testament prophets, key critical figures like Moses, scholars know, but also not only in sending his only son, but he sent this man, John the Baptist, to point and prepare the way. And so John's main goal in being sent was there at the end of verse 7, that all might believe through him, if you see that there. And so this, of course, is not universalism. And I'm going to repeat this later on. The notion, universalism is just a notion that everyone eventually just goes to heaven and is saved. A lot of people who wrote that sur survey are probably pretty much saying the same thing. It was over 50% saying all religions are, are okay and they're all going to eventually be saved and go to heaven. But as one scholar notes that, quote, all who have ever come to faith are indirectly dependent on his opening proclamation of the identity and saving purpose of Jesus, Messiah, close quote. This was the purpose of John the Baptist. This is not universalism, but that all might believe through him that anyone who should believe that should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, it started with the work of John the Baptist preparing the way. And imagine that utterly unfathomable position to be the one who was sent to bear witness about the light of the world. You know, I was trying to imagine that while preparing this, and, and it was just unthinkable to me, the position that John had. So let's move on to verse 8. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Last week we mentioned that the prologue, verse 1 through 18, is written with a poetic flair. Some even, like I said, call the Gospel of John the poetic gospel. But one device that is used often in poetry is repetition. And so look at verse 7 and 8, and you can see that there, to bear witness about the light. Verse 8, to bear witness about the light. Obviously, you'll also note in the four verses there, light, 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 repeated five times in Four very short verses. This is John's way to highlight. He's drawing the reader in to focus where it's needed. And so now we need to pause with the wording of verse 8. He was not the light. Scholars point out a variety of possible explanations that this needed to be said. We'll see in the narrative starting in verse 19 after the prologue that John gets interrogated about who he was. But later, though, some may have even thought that there was something more to John the Baptist. Perhaps he was the Messiah, or as one person wrote, the final revelation of God. And so the New Testament tells us that there was an identified group, even in Acts, of people that were considered maybe something special, extra godly, because they were baptized by John the Baptist. But I agree with scholars that the main thrust of this portion was that John the Baptist readily recognized his role. That's why he is saying, I'm not the light. 
He embraced the call and he definitely had to point to the true capital, L-I-G-H-T. Now to the final verse today then is verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And we'll start with that opening phrase, the true light. It's similar to what we said about in verse eight about John the Baptist not being the light himself, that this was only reserved for the Savior, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity as word become flesh. And the Greek word used for true, Carson notes, means real or genuine. And John uses the word as such elsewhere in the book that this is the real deal, that this is, as the title says, the true light, the real genuine light. In a day of knockoffs today, guys, we all shop online and and maybe visit a different country or, or, or certain stalls in the city, and we see, is this real? Uh, I'm going to spend 30 bucks on this, but uh, I'm not so sure. Is this a counterfeit or, or a knockoff? And then, of course, I get calls every day about my car warranty and things like that. There's always scams galore on and on, and it's refreshing to even hear the concept then, to go back to God's word and say, yes, in, in a world of counterfeits, it's just wonderful to meditate on what is real, authentic, genuine and true. Our, our society is just so filled with false messiahs, false goods, false products. Instead of buying Adidas, people sell Adidas. <laughs> I saw on the internet Beats, our headphones, really expensive headphones by Dr. Dre. Well, our counterfeit was sold as Beats by Dr. Dre or get your next Under Armour shoes only to buy the fake Under Arms shoes. In the 80s, I visited South Korea and we loaded up on buying all these wonderful polo, uh, the designer brand, Ralph Lauren, polo shirts, only to come back to the States and realize one of the legs of the horses was missing. That's how you could tell uh, it was counterfeit. Or you could buy cheaper Mountain Dew uh, by buying Mountain Mania. <laughs> I, I, was, I was probably spending way too much time looking these up, but I can go on for ages. There's a lot of counterfeits out there, and those are humorous. But throughout history, the false messiahs have hit every culture, every nation, every context you can imagine, from politicians to military leaders to religious extremists and zealots, not only in Jesus' day, but ever since we are bombarded with people or even ideologies that present themselves as the true light. But as blatantly preposterous as our knockoff goods are, believers need to also speedily recognize and realize when something or something is presented as the real light. But sometimes knockoffs can only be determined, and I was doing my research on this, by looking really closely at how something is even stitched. I was amazed for those of you guys buying really expensive purses and bags. Like it, it can come down to the stitching a small, certain pattern. And so a lot of times people are bamboozled with false messiahs because they're not ready to look at the minute details. This is why we need to study. This is why Westminster, we, when we take that survey also, we should, we should definitely be avoiding these questions, the basic orthodox questions about the identity of Jesus Christ. We need to dig deeper. We need to not take things again for granted. So again, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And moving along in this verse then, you'll notice 
that there is a repetition again there on the concept of all who might believe in verse 7. Now in verse 8, uh, verse 9, gives light to everyone. Again, this is not a notion of universalism that may be more popular these days than ever. But as Carson notes, this is not giving light in a creation type of way, but this is, entails that Christ has shown his light to all peoples. This is what that verse means, that the gospel is presented to all peoples, to everyone. There is no distinctions or discrimination to the exposure of this light to the world. Now, of course, this includes the truth that not everyone wants the light or wants to accept and receive the light of Christ. And he'll explain this later, of course, in the famous passage after John 3.16. But nevertheless, Jesus is the true light, and the light actually confronts all peoples. And so coming into the world, as the verse concludes in verse 9, nine, the world is deemed as sinful and dark in this context. It's not, look at this beautiful, just wonderful world with a bunch of just wonderful people, but the world represents a fallen world. And so to summarize then, all of these verses then, we have seen two characters, two distinct purposes. John the, uh, the Baptist is to point and to bear witness. Jesus, the true light, is to seek and to save, to shine brightly to this dark and sinful world. Jesus' light does multiple things. Jesus' light illumines those darkened hearts to then believe. Jesus' light exposes and confronts the sin of our own hearts and of this world. And also Jesus' light leads to himself while turning those who want to remain in rebellion to scurry away. And so John the Baptist was not the saving light to come into this world, but the purpose and role was similar to a lighthouse on a dark, rough coastline. Lighthouses back in the day especially had a variety of purpose for ships out in sea. I'm fascinated by them actually in history to save you, number one, to save you from peril. The rocks are ahead of you, in, and, and you got to watch out for that in the darkness coming to the shore. Or secondly, to identify this is where homeland is. You're almost there. But also the lighthouse points you all the way back until you actually get home. And so John's purpose was to point others to the true light, to come home. But to so many then, and to so many now, in our fallen condition, there is absolutely not one speck of our hearts or our will that wants to actually run to the light. And so if you ever find yourself loving the light, then all credit and praise is due the one who regenerated your heart to do so. The veil has been removed, and you're saying, this is the light that I want to be in. And so as we segue into our application now, Oh, how we tend to want to point to ourselves too often. Not lighthouses and say, look at the peril out there and come home, but look at me. I want to shine brightly with my own talents or my own skills or my own knowledge instead of pointing to the true light of Christ. It's very subtle. It's almost like counterfeit purses or shoes. It's very subtle, the heart of men and women. To say, oh yeah, I'm learning all these things so that I could really just uh, help a friend who's in need, who's going through a rough time, pointing them to Christ, but then somehow there's a detour, and then there's another detour, and there's another detour to say, look how special I am, look how gifted I am, oh look at the salvation that I have that you don't. It's very subtle, but detours happen all the time. So be careful, friends, and weary of your own heart. 
will never be John the Baptist, nor is there need anymore for John the Baptist. Christ has come. He has finished the final work in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. But now today we can be, and again, analogy can go only so far, we can be little lights though, can't we? Little lighthouses pointing to the true home, the true light, the true Lord and Savior Jesus, something so otherworldly and unimaginable. We can point others to that because friends, over the course of history, especially from the, the early church all the way to now, we are not meant to be isolationists. Ra uh, regardless of how corrupt we see the world is, we are not meant to just say, let's just go up to the top of the mountain until Jesus returns. But we are to be in the world and pointing people and even one another to our Savior Jesus Christ. We are to encounter the world with a light that is not meant to be hidden under a basket, but to be put up on a lampstand. That parable that is found in the other three Gospels holds weight for our application here today to point others, like John the Baptist did, to the true light. And oh, if we can only realize what we have, oh, if we can only realize more and more and more urgently, more accurately in today's climate, with more grace given and driven conviction and understanding of what we have. Oh Lord, help us remember. How, help us to see afresh what beaming treasure of treasures is in us, the gospel of good news. And help us flee temptation from counterfeit lights, maybe dressed up in some moral decorations or some societal good works, but ultimately pointing us away from the sun and so please remember, brothers and sisters, that as John is writing this to the church, he is emphasizing that God, there is this God who speaks, but also the God who sends is a God who has a redeeming plan, despite however we feel about what's happening in the world. And that ultimately God will do what he wills to come to pass. The victory has already been won through the logos, the light, the giver of life. God has a plan. And so for the John the Baptist, God had a plan. For Jesus to come, word become flesh, God had a plan. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for this church, but also for the church universal. And so may we leave here feeling confident about that, despite any circumstances we see, despite any study or report or, or survey that comes out, that God has a plan. But when we diverge from what the Bible says, who Jesus really is, and there's strong evidence that it's of course happening right now, oh, that's when we just lose ourselves and our witness is a limping witness. I say this carefully, but I hope hopefully boldly, our witness then becomes a limping witness to nothing more than an empty morality and sentimental feelings. This is not how it's supposed to be. And so let's hold firmly to the truth before us, brothers and sisters. The true light has already come. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of John, how we're learning and maybe relearning again the wonders of the doctrine of Christ. Oh, to study and delve deeply so that we can get up close and personal with our Savior. Oh, that these truths are not just for our head knowledge, but may it seep into our hearts so that it could produce more genuine worship, that it could remove us from looking and gazing and pointing others and ourselves to ourselves, to our own lights, 
but may our study in this, may our reception of your holy word in the book of John, in the gospel, oh, instill in us and convict us and inspire us to shine our lights brightly to the true light, to be pointers to the true light, the everlasting light that has come to save those who believe in him. God, we thank you for your word. May it transform us, may it change us, and may this be for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.